But yeah, I had a I, I had a good weekend. Got to spend a bunch of time with my mom, radicalize her, get her to hate landlords. Uh, we talked a lot about the fucking trains. The all of a sudden, out of nowhere, trains. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the funny things. It's like I've seen a lot of people complaining about the fact that like right wing media has picked up more on the the derailment than the centrist media has. And that they're like, oh, this is this means that talking about the derailment is a like right wing sheepdog thing. And I'm like, no. What? <laughs> I'm like, that's a, it's an actual thing that happened and it is an actual disaster. And honestly, I actually think you can take advantage of that to be like, yeah, you're right. The train derailment is a disaster. And the workers were telling us about that for years. If if but fucking Biden came out here and he betrayed the rail unions and steer the people back onto the right path with this thing away from whatever conspiracy bullshit that Fox News is peddling. Yeah, and definitely the uh why is it that they set everything on fire and right. and you know they wanted to clear the tracks. It's the logic of capital. They need to keep everything moving. And so in order to keep the trains moving, they can't shut it down for a couple of days while they clean it up. No, they have to set it all on fire and, you know, put tons of toxic chemicals into the air. Uh, I mean, not to say that there wouldn't still be some like groundwater pollution and such, but at least it could have been more contained if the logic of capitalism hadn't exacerbated the need to just like quickly get everything running as soon as possible. Yeah, it's an interesting complaint because I almost don't believe that right-wing media is picking it up a little bit because it's like, what's their angle? Uh, We should just let BNSF and Norfolk Southern do whatever they want forever. (laughs) Well, Well, one of the angles is that like, there that this is a conspiracy to poison the like largely white and conservative areas of Ohio where the derailment happened and that's why it's not being reported on by the centrist media and why the like department of transportation hasn't done anything about it so they're just like uh they're just doing doing racist they conspiracy s- theories. They sabotaged yeah, the train on purpose. They, well, I mean, they <laughs> did in a certain sense, but not in the way that you know is being described here. Yeah, they're trying to make it into like a white genocide thing, <laughs> which is like that's but fucked. That, that's partially why I think it can be taken as an opportunity because that is such a fucking stretch, even for that like unhinged nonsense conspiracy racism bullshit so like it's very easy to talk to somebody who's heard that and hasn't heard anything dissenting about it and be like hey yeah okay probably not but you know what what about the fact that both the governor of ohio and president biden took a shitload of money from the rail companies and then biden shut down a railway strike from workers saying things that would have made the railroads safer and the governor of ohio is telling you that the water is safe there Mm -hmm. based on testing done by the company that caused the spill so maybe those are the problems and it's both of the parties that are our fucking enemies (laughs) and mike dewine doesn't even have the decency to take a fake little sip of the water like (laughs) obama did (laughs) (laughs) where's our devil's milkshake (laughs) come on mike drink a gallon of that stuff it's fucked though it is it's terrible it's a terrible situation uh and as long as we're talking about situations
work stoppage, everybody. Your favorite, favorite situation podcast. podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we cover nothing but situations, wall to wall. Cast members from Jersey Shore. My name is John. I'm Dan, and I'm Lena. And we are an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. If you do, if you're not in the Discord already, go ahead and hop in there. It's a fun place. If you don't have any stickers from us yet, just message us on Patreon, and we will get them to our patrons ASAP. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you think it will help. Yeah. And so... To get right into a, yet another extremely busy week of labor news, we got a quick check in here with the ongoing for who knows how long strike at Temple University. Uh, you know, obviously, even amongst the plethora of academic strikes lately, there's been a lot of close coverage for folks who pay attention to labor news about this strike at Temple because of just how harshly the administration has retaliated against these striking grad workers. But this strike, which is about to wrap up its third week on the picket lines, may be about to end because uh, on Friday evening, on February 17th, the university announced that they've reached a tentative agreement with the grad student worker union, TUGSA. Uh, however, because they are actually, uh, I hate that this is a rare thing that we have to highlight, but it's very nice to see and I want to praise it. it they made the democratic move of continuing the strike while they are voting on it, because of course, one of the possible outcomes is that the agreement will be voted down and the strike will need to continue. So uh, we've had very little new news about this since this announcement, of course, because the union is going through the internal democratic processes of voting on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got from the Philadelphia Inquirer that the new deal for 750 grad student workers would see some wage increases in all four years of the deal, as well as a one-time bonus payment, and that they would also see no additional health insurance costs, but we don't have any other details from the deal as the time of this writing. We did hear from Temple University as well. They claimed in a statement that the, that the union agreed to drop the many ULP charges against the university for its flagrantly illegal acts of retaliation during the strike, but uh, Tugsa denied doing so, which is, that's a really interesting thing to lie about, I think. Uh, the they also has... lied and said the strike was over, I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> the, the, uh, that's right. <laughs> the temple ad admins are all living off that, like, the secret, like, positive mindset, will it yeah. into existence idealism, just, like, thinking if they say it, it'll become true. <laughs> Yeah, they're manifesting underpaid employees. Uh, <laughs> the union also said that the charges remain open, the ULP charges, and the strike will remain active while voting is held, as we said. So, you know, really great, as Dan said, to see that uh, kind of strength and democracy from the union. These workers have been fighting for a major wage increase since they currently only make $20,000 a year, which is not enough to even cover their rent in Philadelphia. Nearby, University of Pennsylvania grad student workers receive a $38,000 a year stipend, which is a major increase this year, clearly aimed at preventing the kind of worker militancy we've seen in the Temple Strike and across academia. Workers have also been fighting for dependent health insurance, and there's been no word as of yet on what the proposed deal says on either of those issues. So as usual, do, no matter how many times the workers tell you what their major issues are, it's always like those are kind of the ones the media doesn't pay attention to right away. No, no disrespect to the labor press or anything, but like, you know, I don't think the Philadelphia Inquirer <laughs> is a labor, <laughs> you know, publication. <laughs> yeah. One thing that like I 
think is really important here is we talk about the percentage of people's incomes that goes towards rent really often. Uh, previously, we talked about like uh, one of, some university students, I think it was in Boston, um, who had almost 60% or more of their income go towards rent. Uh, if you're making $20,000 a year, it is 100% of your income. It's Honestly, it's like 150% of your income goes to rent, which yeah. means that you literally need more another job to be able to live there. Is there anywhere in this country where you can rent an apartment for less than $1,500 a month? I don't fucking think so. Uh, it, not not in a major city anyway. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so this, I think a big part, and we'll end up seeing when we get more information, once the voting is concluded. But I think definitely what has to have played a major role in the university coming back to the table, regardless of whether this agreement goes through, has to be, though, the pressure that has been building on them over the last couple of weeks as the infer- like news about the horrific retaliation against the workers, uh, just you know, for folks who aren't aware, stripping them of their tuition reimbursement, telling them that if they don't now pay the uh, tuition they thought they were going to have reimbursed, that they would get a mark on their record that would prevent them from registering for classes the next year, essentially derailing their entire academic. Uh, pursuit of their degree, uh, along with the unfortunately now very standard evil move of the bosses of cutting off their health care for striking. And so there has been, you know, all this has actually escalated, you know, to national level media at this point, not a ton of coverage, but more than you get for most strikes. And there have been a lot of uh, prominent figures, activists, and even some politicians calling for them to uh, stop doing that and come back to the table and bargain in good faith. So, I mean, we'll have to see if this gets accepted and when the terms come out, I, I would imagine it will likely be because of the, you know, the pressure and also the bravery of these students in like getting hit with all of that union busting and responding by saying, okay, fuck you. We're still on strike. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Yeah. And just like in, in, in a big manifestation of that was this week on Wednesday when the workers held a whole march where they went like marched down Broad Street in Philly with like a thousand people, including a whole bunch of their own undergraduate students. So like just demonstrating like those sorts of shows of solidarity where you can show like it's not just us workers. It's also the whole community, including the students that like are only at the university because of the work that these grad student workers who teach most of their classes do. And so like th- these are the sorts of, of, of pa- like basically power moves you know, by a union that can play a really big role in affecting negotiations. Yeah, and all solidarity to these workers, and we hope that they get everything and more that they're demanding. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in our next follow-up, we're going to be talking about, well, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Packers Sanitation Services, the place that was using child labor to kill slaughter floor, like the kill floors of the slaughterhouses, uh, having children as young as 13 using caustic chemicals, and you know, which many of them actually got injuries and burns well uh there has actually been a ruling on this on february 17th on friday the department of labor announced that they had fined the company 1.5 million dollars for illegally using over a hundred kids from across eight states to clean these meat these meat packing plants 
which is not a lot of money. But first, we have Jessica Lumen from the Department of Labor, who is the principal investigator on this case, who said the child labor violations in this case were systemic and reached across eight states and clearly indicate a corporate-wide failure by Packer Sanitation Service at all levels, end quote. And I think that corporate-wide failure is a little kind to them. <laughs> I think it's very <laughs> kind. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, to, frankly, I would call that covering for them. Yeah, because clearly this was done on purpose. This is this is like child trafficking and child abuse and in, to some extent a, a form of child slavery. Yeah, like uh, the statement would be correct if you simply removed the word failure and inserted the word policy. <laughs> because oh, yeah. it's like... Look, it's a company, and the purpose of the company is to make as much profit as they possibly can by whatever means they can get away with doing it. And well, and clearly the reason, they can. Well, right, and and the reason that they employed these kids is because they could make more money doing it that way. Again, that's the policy. That's the purpose of the company's existence. It's not a failure. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not an oversight. And, and, and that's the thing that's like so frustrating about this, because on the one hand, it is a $1.5 million fine. Like that isn't nothing like that's like, that's a real chunk of money, but to us, sure. Yeah. But I'm saying, Oh, I guess compared to the pitiful standards that we have been forced to adopt as people who tend to follow the fines laid out by the NLRB or OSHA, which tend to be like $20. So mm-hmm. yeah. Cause you mean what? 1.5 million works out to about $15,000 per child, right? And that's which the is a fine that goes to the government. And so is there any recourse for these families? Is there any actual real repercussions to the company? Not really. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I suppose, like, the families of the kids could certainly sue Packer Sanitation for civil damages, but, like, that would, you know, require them to have the legal assistance to do that and the resources and the time and also to not be afraid that if they do that, that, you know, potentially they could get harassed by any number of government repressive agencies, ICE, the police, private security companies masquerading as those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and uh, like, how much does this company make per year? $3 billion. Yeah. $3 billion. This This is not going to affect their bottom line. This is just like a... Uh, well, we're going to have to uh, be a bit more covert or, you know, make sure that, you know, someone is there to lie about it in the future and maybe not do it as much or something. I mean, they didn't even pledge to not do it anymore. They pledged to use new programs to prevent it. Right. That's that's like saying it's so structurally baked in that we're going to have to scrimp and save not to use child labor. We're going to have to really grease the wheels of our industry. Like, what the (laughs) fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's the most frustrating to me is, is that these sorts of things continuously reveal that so many of the things that we're told are like illegal are only sort of illegal or because it's the sort of thing where it's like any law that is punishable by a fine. It is the sort of thing that is legal as long as you're rich enough. Because Mm -hmm. like, again, 
$1.5 million is not nothing. Like, it's a real fine. Uh, I did see somebody in our Discord, I think, uh, suggested it should be $1.5 million per child, which I 100% agree uh, with that. Uh, that sounds a bit more right. And just give that to their families. Um, but, like, the thing that's so frustrating to me is the fact that they come out and they say the violations in this case were systemic, which is correct. And then there's no announcement of criminal charges. There's mm -hmm. nothing about any of the board members who obviously had to approve this policy being punished for in being engaging in what is essentially a child trafficking ring. Mm -hmm. uh, there's none of that. Nothing. It's all just, well, they, you know, they made a mistake and we find them. And so they've promised they won't do it again. And we, you should yeah. believe them. <laughs> like, come the fuck on. <laughs> Yeah, this company should be seized by the state. Uh, Correct. Without no, no no questions about that, we will not hear any arguments to the to the contrary. Well, as long as we're talking about companies that should be seized by the state, let's talk about Warrior Met. Yeah, yeah. And we don't have a whole lot of good news about this, folks. Uh, no. We are seeing an end to the strike. This is the longest ongoing strike in the United States, which will end next week on the second of March. When the workers at Warrior Met will return to work, one month shy of two years since launching their strike. Unfortunately, they are not returning with a new deal, but because they have largely exhausted their legal channels for continuing the strike. Without this new deal, the workers are instead accepting a, quote, unconditional offer to return to work. We heard from UMWA President Cecil Roberts, who said in a statement, quote, we are entering a new phase of our efforts to win our members and their families the fair and decent contract they need and deserve. We have been locked into this struggle for 23 months now, and nothing has materially changed. The two sides have essentially fought each other to a draw thus far. Despite the company's unlawful bargaining posture the entire time, the status quo is not good for our members and their families, unquote. And so 800 miners remain on strike out of the 1,100 who originally walked out on April 1st, 2021, seeking better pay, benefits, and conditions. They had negotiated with the mine's previous owner. Warrior Met's refusal to honor the contract launched what has become the country's longest work stoppage. And I mean, we talk on this show about how, like, you see them out on the picket lines at some places for three months, nine months. That's a long time. That's like an incredibly long time. 23 is just... I mean, it's really, it's Herculean to be out there yeah. as workers for that long. Yeah. This, uh, yeah, this news, it's, it sucks. And, and like, it's, it's also, I, there is a, at least from where I haven't, you know, I haven't checked in the last couple of hours, but when I've been trying to understand like how exactly this process works, that essentially what it is, is the union has made a offer to return to work. Basically like, look, our essentially more or less waving a white flag, being like, fine, we'll end the strike, we'll all come back to work. Now, as a part of that, the company actually still has to accept that because mm -hmm. the alternative is that the company could choose not to accept it, which would then shift this from a strike into a lockout. But that would also change some things legally, so I, I, I don't know. I, that, so that is a possible outcome that mm -hmm. Warrior Met could just decide to lock out the workers and not accept them back, but that seems less likely and and so yeah so more more that it seems like the most likely outcome is that yeah uh next week on the second that the workers will return uh kind of back to the same position they were in unfortunately when they walked off just under two years ago 
Yeah. And after having gone through, you know, basically two years out on the picket line where they've been picketing, protesting, rallying and standing strong with each other, supporting the fight for a fair deal. And they they have received a lot of solidarity from other unions and workers across the country, but they also faced violence and legal harassment from the very start. The local police acted as strike breakers from the first hours of the strike, providing escorts for scab workers immediately hired to replace the strikers and repeatedly attacking picket lines. Scabs also hit picketers with their vehicles multiple times, but the court still granted injunctions limiting their picketing. So it's got to be hard to go through all of that and then realize that maybe at this point your best option is to try to go back to work. I mean, it's got to be really disheartening. I, I, My heart goes out to these workers for putting up with all this stuff, especially when they're fighting Warrior Met, which uh, has so much backing by the state and uh, local officials. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because that's the other thing here is it's not because, like, Cecil Roberts was right in a statement that, like, you know, the union and the company have sort of fought themselves to a draw here but part of that is because they're not just fighting the company they're fighting mm -hmm. the state officials that are bought and paid for by the company and its financial owners like blackrock uh on wall street because you know all through this there has been total siding with the company by local and national officials uh like you you've had it, it's it's allowed the company to more or less like minimize the economic impact of the strike because they've been able to get injunctions to limit picketing. They've, they've tied down the union with frivolous legal charges related to the, the union using vehicles to block entryways. And the, the story we talked about last year about when they tried to sue the union for like $14 million of money for unmined coal so, mm. and, and, and the whole time, you know, you had like the governor of, of Alabama, you had senators all siding with the company openly. So yeah, it just, it became kind of a war of attrition there. And the state has done everything it possibly could to help make sure that the company would be able to keep making money and therefore be able to keep holding out against the workers. Yeah. Uh, but with the strike, not really making the impact that it was that was necessary to force warrior met to the table the union deciding that it would be better in their interest of their members to kind of end the strike return to work fight for a contract while you know on the floor and you know actually still able to support their families it's un it's an unfortunate loss it it just absolutely is there is kind of the moral victory of seeing how strong the workers held together but it's still kind of difficult to, you know, take this and watch, you know, the government of the country who calls itself a democracy help all of these coal barons break a strike like it's the fucking early stages of union activity in general. Like mm -hmm. the 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 earliest struggles of coal miners when we're talking, you know, about like Matewan or any of these other like, you know, old, older struggles. It's what we're, we're seeing here is just. But, you know, it's 2023, so just have to realize that things haven't changed that much. And uh, unfortunately, when it comes especially to fossil fuels, the industry that America cares about more than anything else in the world, they're willing to do anything to repress the workers.
Right. And it's like, this is just, it's one of those things. It's like, this is like the whole, you, you know, our hearts go out to the, the striking workers who have just been absolutely heroic out there on the line for the last two years have laid it all out there to, you know, fight and stand strong for each other. But I think one of the things to take away from this is, is it's like, this is the exact sort of situation that shows like why, business unionism and i'm not saying that the umw i'm not like this is not to criticize the umwa this is a the abstract concept of business unionism why that is not an acceptable sustainable ideology because the core assumption there is that the capitalist system we are currently under is acceptable for workers it just needs some tweaks we just need to balance things a little bit and give workers a little bit more power but that's not how this shit works because as long as the capitalist state exists, it has this extra legal framework because of the fact that it controls the legal framework, wherein it can act on the side and put its thumb on the scale on the side of the companies. And we don't have that same mechanism. And that's why our unionism has to fight for a world in which you know, the antagonism of the bosses and the workers is not this permanent feature of life and is in fact abolished. And we instead have a system where the workers run everything because they're the ones that make everything. Mm-hmm. And then we don't have to constantly have these fucking fights that drag on for years because you have private individuals owning things like coal mines and deciding that, no, they just don't want to pay workers enough to actually get by. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we do have a quote here from Hayden Wright a uh, wife of a striking miner and one of the more prominent you know people who has been speaking on on you know this topic who explained her feelings on twitter saying quote we are a right to work state let me give this advice every contractor you allow in your contract is a scab in waiting everyone who doesn't sign a card will scab don't forget this this was only one obstacle of many The next was fighting the same executives that drove the company into bankruptcy in the first place, which led to private equity groups owning large portions of the company. So now we took uh, so now we took on BlackRock and Vanguard. If it wasn't enough of a David and Goliath fight, we had to fight for our First Amendment rights in the courts. Our state government allowed state troopers to escort scabs. Kate Britt took endorsements from Warrior Met executives. Kay Ivey supported the company. When we took the fight to D.C., Tommy Tuberville uh, read a company letter. Through all of this, we have held strong and in a large part to the prayers and solidarity shown to us by our fellow workers. It has been hard emotionally, financially, and physically, but we're not giving up. End quote. And it's a heartbreaking. It really mm-hmm. is, because uh, that is a, Those are huge odds to be fighting against. That is that is the institutional power of institutional powers to be trying to get just some fucking dignity, just just to be able to to live your fucking life and make enough money to support your family, and just. You know, it's re- it's just really difficult, you know, seeing seeing this loss here, and hopefully, this shift in the fight gets the workers towards a position where they can actually get something, because they deserve everything. 
Yeah. So uh, to transition from one group of incredibly exploited workers to one of the other groups of some of the most exploited workers in the country, uh, we want to talk about the situation facing agricultural workers in this country, because uh, a few weeks ago, I think about a month now, there was a really awful mass shooting at uh, Half Moon Bay in California where seven agricultural workers were murdered. And we're not here to talk about that awful incident, but that story has drawn very rare attention to the issue of the living conditions and working conditions faced by agricultural workers in the United States. And so Breakthrough News recently did a really excellent interview discussing these working conditions and how U.S. labor law is set up to basically structurally exclude farm workers from legal protections that most other workers have for purely racist and capitalist reasons. Um, And so basically... There's this essentially this really severe housing crisis that's facing farm workers, like even more so than the housing crisis for, you know, everybody that's gripping everybody else, because, you know, that's already harsh for most folks. And agricultural workers are some of the lowest paid, most abused workers in the country. And so many farm workers are forced to live in awful like barracks style housing on their job sites during the year. There are some slightly better housing at migrant camps, but that those are only open from April to November, and then workers have to move. That there's no permanent or year-round solution. And that and and also like, you know, uh, the conditions that a lot of these folks are forced to live in, you'll have people like renting garages that aren't insulated to be their apartment or just like shacks that have been put up by slumlords that are not anywhere near up to code. You'll have like as many as 19 people sometimes forced to live in a tiny 1000 square foot apartment just because rents are so high and wages are so low and, and just affordable housing is so scarce. Again, this is largely focused on the workers in California uh, because, you know, it's where the largest amount of agricultural workers in the U.S. work. And that there, there are some very small and scattered and few and far between state programs for affordable housing for folks, even for, for migrant workers. But the, the supply is so small and demand is so high that the waiting list for this housing can be five years or more. And this then also unfortunately creates the flip side dynamic of this, that because housing is so hard to get that when workers are forced to accept these blatantly, you know, unsafe, overcrowded, like oftentimes extremely illegal housing setups, that they're then afraid to complain because anybody who says anything just gets thrown out because they're like, look, there's so much demand for housing. I can find somebody to replace you tomorrow. And oftentimes, you know, they threaten to go to the authorities and potentially mm-hmm. get them harassed by ICE. And, and and so it just creates this awful win-win scenario for the landlords to who are often financially intertwined with the agricultural employers. Mm-hmm to continue to just abuse these these farm workers and and steal all their wages from them. Yeah, the bit about just replacing the the tenants if they complained in any capacity really struck me because it's like these are already people who in a lot of cases are pre- in precarious work. Their situation in this country is precarious and they have to defend that already and now you're making the situation for them to even have a home be incredibly 
precarious. And then, uh, so yeah, yeah. because like 84% of farm workers in California are undocumented. Mm -hmm. Like it's difficult to even feel safe in a, in a day-to-day fashion with the way of how, with how racist this country is and the way that it treats, you know, people who are traveling for work. Uh, I mean, and on top of that, I mean, 60 to 80 percent of farm worker women are harassed or sexually assaulted. This, and there is like there's no legal oversight how uh, whatsoever. And abusers are nearly never held accountable. Yeah. I mean, think about how accountable sexual assault uh, abusers are held in a normal corporate work environment. It's already pretty fucking awful. And then yeah. when you're working in an industry with as few protections and as little oversight as this, it's it's just really extremely amplified. Yeah, it's it's fucked. And then like this creates compounding problems for so many of these families because when they're forced out of housing in this cyclical nature because of again the seasonal uh, nature of, of work that means that their kids constantly have to change schools which uh, i mean is incredibly disruptive mm-hmm. to any kids learning and so that often means those kids fall behind in their learning because again you know you're just going from one school to another it's not like they have the exact same lesson plan and curriculum so you have to get yourself up to speed with whatever they're doing so even if you like have a nominally well-run transition it's like that's inevitably going to put you behind and and that that and it that you know is even harder because that education is one of the things that you know so many of these families view as a way out of this form of hyper exploitation that they're forced to live under but the nature of the work and the lack of housing and the lack of state support means that they're essentially structurally put at such a massive disadvantage yeah i mean like for a long time and i mean this rule still exists uh for but there's been recently in 2018 an exemption for uh migrant families is this 50 mile rule which forced uh children to change schools basically twice a year because since it's seasonal labor and then the workers you know exit the housing that is seasonal then they're no longer in that area so they have to change schools well technically now kids can stay in the same schools but that also means that the kids are very far away from their families and there's you know that kind of history of child separation of migrant families in that sense uh it's ridiculous i mean i changed schools once in high school and i ended up taking like a civics class in my freshman year in my first school but that was actually like a junior or senior level class in the school that I moved to so I ended up taking like a US history class that was also a freshman class I basically took a, just a ton of freshman classes my senior year which and and even then uh, the the school like classes were some of stuff I can't even imagine being in a situation where you have to change schools two or three times a year yeah, and constantly have your classes mixed up to make sure that your credits are straight or anything mm-hmm. like that. It it seems really insurmountable in certain cases. Well, and even the kids who uh, you know who the exemption applies to and who now can stay in the same school year round, it's expensive to stay in the same area. So, like you know, these families are relying on different situations for housing because of their economic situation. It's not always possible for them 
to to make sure that there's transportation or housing near the school. Yeah, and they're being poisoned. Uh, the the people who are working in the fields are being poisoned by these pesticides, even though they're not supposed to. They're not supposed to be spraying while the workers are in the fields, but the workers continually attest to literally tasting the poison in the air. Uh, and anyone who you know speaks up has you know very often been deported or even blacklisted by the agribusiness companies themselves. And the sub-poverty wages also prevent workers uh, from, you know, doing anything to actually sustain themselves. They struggle to find enough to eat, to be able to afford uh, healthy food. These are people who actually grow food. They're who Mm -hmm. actually are the workers Mm -hmm. who are producing food, and they can't actually get food themselves, which has led to increasing diabetes and and other sorts of illnesses amongst these workers. These are the people who actually allow people across the country to eat, and they themselves are not allowed. Yeah, and and this has like a direct impact on quality of life for folks, and, and it is a somewhat shocking numerical difference that you can just lay it out there because, uh, like, they were discussing in the interview, like a survey that was done about 10 years ago, found that the average life expectancy for an agricultural worker in this country is only 49 years, which is over 20 years lower than the U.S. average. And so, like, on top of the fact that, like, the quality of your life gets degraded so much by the type of, of constant rampant speed up that is demanded on us farms mm-hmm. that just destroys, you know, the, the backs and knees and joints of, of, of so many farm workers that on top of that, it's so demanding. There's so many poisons there. You're forced to work in, is in heat stroke generating conditions every summer and constantly moving unending stress, incredibly cramped living conditions, it makes this, it is a, it literally steals decades of these workers' lives. And these are the workers without whom none of us could eat. Yeah. Like, that is a fucked system. (laughs) Yeah. Like, these are some of the most important workers in the entire country, and they are existing in the worst conditions. And it's all legal, because of racism. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, like, because that's one of the things, you know, like that's kind of the dark side of a lot of the New Deal programs was that a big part of the bargain in order to get them passed by getting to get Southern Democrats to vote for them, because, again, this was at the time when you had, like, a big uh, amount of the Jim Crow South was still in the Democratic Party. And in order to get that, they had to specifically include exclusions from all the new labor rights into the industries, agriculture and domestic work that tended to have by far the highest percentage of non-white workers. That is the only reason that these workers are excluded from these things. It is specifically set up with a racialized worker hierarchy in order to divide the working class against itself in order to suppress wages and make bigger profits for American agribusiness. Yeah, I mean, there's really... Uh, no group of workers that it's more pressing to stand up for, not just because it's the right thing to do because they're so systemically oppressed, but also because like it would help everybody if we lifted Mm -hmm. up the people who were struggling the most in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and like, 
It's not like there's a single, you know, new union we're talking about supporting or one new drive here. Just this is the general condition faced by agricultural workers and why, like, it's so important that we build the sort of cross-union solidarity Mm -hmm. that can be used to help workers even when they're specifically left out of things by the state. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we we need more people talking about conditions like this when you want to talk about systemic racism make sure to talk about agricultural workers Mm -hmm. make sure to bring up these conditions because this is again how we get food and they can't eat well and if anybody ever tells you that uh standing up for these workers is going to somehow put small farmers out of business ask them what small farmers (laughs) yeah name two (laughs) you can't yeah like the this the the monopolization of agriculture in this country is like to such a degree that I don't think most people realize because um, it's not talked about very much. Like the there's this portrayal like the railroads. Yeah, no, exactly. Very (laughs) similar to the railroads because there's this portrayal of like the small American farmer that is the backbone of American agriculture. Like that hasn't been true in like 50 years. It's actually more expensive to grow your own food in many cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, anyways, uh, seize all the agricultural monopolies and turn them over to these agricultural workers because they would run them better anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about things that could be run better, let's talk <laughs> about right. an Elon Musk venture. So we are seeing Workers United launching a push to unionize none other than Tesla in Buffalo. So uh, the we've seen the incredible power of rank-and-file organizing shown by Starbucks Workers United spreading to another company, but this is not a coffee chain. As I said, it is Tesla this week, Tuesday, February 14th, workers in Buffalo who provide data analysis for Tesla's autopilot program. Very specific job. Announced yeah. that they are unionizing with Workers United, and they absolutely deserve to do so because, as we've talked about on the show many times, Image processing work that companies like to pretend is performed by AI is actually usually performed by a large group of hyper-exploited workers. And while the folks labeling data for Tesla's autopilot program aren't quite as horrifically exploited as the refugees doing similar work for many companies like Amazon, they're still facing incredibly awful working conditions. I mean, just imagine the the psychic stress of of labeling things and analyzing data so that a car can not hit the wrong thing you know yeah and there i mean tesla doesn't have a great history of doing that successfully uh (laughs) definitely not as a, a dig at these workers uh mostly at a dig at the incredibly awful high paced and constantly increasingly damaging work environment that they're facing and the idea that you just have to get something onto the market like that's one thing that that musk is constantly on about is just you know pretend something's working and tell them it's working well Well, yeah yeah, and as a little bit of a sidebar the autopilot feature uh tesla specifically says in their warranty i think that you're only allowed to use it off-road which is not what it's <laughs> calibrated for anyway. So basically they're giving you a feature, telling you not to use it, knowing that you will use it, and then using your consumer data from you putting yourself at risk as free testing instead of hiring employees. That's right. It's, it's garbage brain. Well, and also, like, if we consider the um, 
checkered history of the autopilot program, consider how much worse, like, it would be if the conditions for these workers continue to get worse. And how much better, conversely, it could be if these workers were actually organized and were actually able to have a say in how that program was run. Uh, Because, you know, a big part of why these workers have been driven to organize is because of the same awful work conditions that so many other workers have talked about at other Tesla facilities, like the dictatorial control of management, which has often been tinged with uh, extreme racism, Mm -hmm. uh, and the unsustainable levels of speed up that are constantly dropped on these workers. Like... Uh, Josh Idelson at Bloomberg broke this story and and in his reporting said that workers of the plant have every keystroke that they type, tracked, and monitored, every analysis task that they are given is timed, and even their bathroom breaks are monitored. Hey, look, the parallels between American monopolies are growing. Um, we workers- We've finally created the 90-second minute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> workers are also disciplined for too much time off task, also just like Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so one one member of the organizing committee, Al Selly, told Bloomberg, quote, people are tired of being treated like robots, end quote. Um, it makes a lot of sense, especially because they're going through the grueling, boring work of image labeling, and they're starting at $19 an hour, which is like... That's not a living wage for Buffalo. That's not a living wage for anywhere. And it's certainly not fair compensation for staring at a stop sign and labeling it stop sign and then staring <laughs> at a fire hydrant and labeling it fire hydrant, all where your boss looks at a spreadsheet that says you spent 8.2 seconds off task this minute. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Especially because uh, Tesla's a fucking huge company. Mm-hmm. He, like, they make a lot of money. Which, you know, is a lot of it is subsidies from the government, but you still, that's a lot of fucking money. Yeah, and and at the same time that they're making that money, one of the things that Musk often does is just lay off huge swaths of workers, mm-hmm. which is another one of the things that prompted these workers to unionize because that is because a union is the only thing in this country you can ever actually rely on as protection against at-will employment. Uh, and, and in regards to that, we're, uh, worker Zara LaRoche said in a statement from the union, quote, as much as I love my job, it can feel very disheartening living paycheck to paycheck when I work for one of the most successful companies in the world, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. Something we see with a lot of tech workers. I mean, so many stories of people who get a good job in uh, Silicon Valley and then end up living in their car just to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as, you know, we're prone to do, tell people to jump in the Discord, they also started their organizing drive in a Discord, which is, you know, I guess just a good platform for certain (laughs) kinds of uh, nerds. Discord, Uh, it's not just for gaming. (laughs) (laughs) It's also for union organizing. That's right. right. Yeah. And uh, so once they had talked about their complaints and, you know, some of the company policies that were particularly causing them problems and also the fact that their internal employee chat was shut down uh they reached out to workers united to help uh with you know growing the power of their union and you know they actually also you know have a similarity because you know this is with workers united and buffalo is where the starbucks workers united movement started uh, I believe that uh, when I first saw a photo 
a, a familiar face showed up. A <laughs> one Jazz Brizak, absolute like legend, uh, is also helping run this campaign. So we're kind of hopeful in that regard too, because she's a great organizer. <laughs> Yeah, well, and they they launched their campaign handing out leaflets on on Tuesday the 14th, which was Valentine's Day. And so they had themed flyers saying, roses are red, violets are blue. Forming a union starts with you. And a link (laughs) to sign up for the union drive. But, hell yeah. Unfortunately, right on cue, uh, Elon Musk did the thing you would exactly expect Elon Musk to do. And launched into illegal union-busting mode, and literally the very next day, Tesla fired dozens of workers at the Buffalo plant, uh, especially folks who were involved with the union effort. Uh, The union, Workers United, has immediately filed ULPs and are asking the NLRB to issue an injunction to, quote, to prevent irreparable destruction of employee rights resulting from Tesla's unlawful conduct, end quote. And speaking of Jazz Brizak, as you mentioned, Lena who was herself illegally fired from Starbucks as the NLRB ruled and is now helping on this organizing drive. She told Bloomberg, quote, this is a form of collective retaliation against the group of workers that started this organizing effort. The firings are designed to terrify everyone about potential consequences of them organizing, end quote. Yeah. Well, she knows what she's talking about. She's seen it before. Yeah. Well, and uh, another thing that Tesla did immediately in response to the workers organizing is announce a new technology policy. Uh, Get ready to store your phone in your locker on your way Mm -hmm. into work. Uh, At the facility, clearly intended, of course, to prevent workers from talking to each other and to illegally suppress organizing. So I do kind of love, in a a stupid jokey sense, how Tesla was like, they got on Discord and they talked to each other about their wages. They're basically hackers. and We have to do (laughs) what the government does and we're Restrict their computer access. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine thinking that this is going to work. Like, I know. Just be like, all right, so uh, we're definitely not against the union, but we heard about the union, and now you're not allowed to have your phones. Yeah, which is illegal, but of course, Tesla doesn't really care that it's illegal because as we talk about all the time on this show, there are really not a lot of consequences for large companies breaking the law, often none. Worst case, the NLRB rules against them, but appeals can drag out for months, and the most the company would have to do is rehire the workers and pay back pay, which would probably not bother them all that much. In the meantime, the damage to the workers' lives has already been done. But, like, as you say, Lena, taking away their phones and uh, discouraging them from organizing is not going to work because the workers aren't even waiting for the board to do anything. They are already planning to use this to demonstrate to workers precisely that only by organizing can they have any real rights at work. So we heard from Sarah Constantino, a member of the organizing committee, who told the AP, quote, they want us to be scared, but I think they just started a stampede. We can do this, but I believe we will do this. Hell yeah. That rocks. Love to love to hear that kind of energy. And, you know, like, there aren't many other unions in the U.S. right now that have more experience <laughs> dealing with illegal union busting than Workers United. So Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really think any of these moves are going to, you know, fluster them that much. This isn't their first rodeo, so to speak. Yeah, well, and speaking of rodeos, we can talk about, (laughs) (laughs) we can talk about, you know, the uh, Medieval Times Union that has been, you know, organizing across the country 
on February 11th, the Buena Park location uh, went on an indefinite ULP strike because, you know, we talked about how the company had taken down their social media, about how they are in the middle of filing a lawsuit on trademark infringement because they said medieval times in the name of the union and then (laughs) used a a little fancy font in some of their literature and display items is like it's absolutely ridiculous but the workers are fighting back they have gone on a ulp strike and uh, i mean in addition to the illegal union busting the company uh had been had given non-union locations raises of 20 percent in an attempt to stop them from unionizing compared to the only 2% that was offered at the bargaining table to the unions that exist within the company. So uh, clearly an unfair treatment of the people who are organizing here. They are demanding, while on this ULP strike, that the company settle all pending unfair labor practice charges and end all practices of union repression. And, you know, as with most union-busting companies... Medieval Times has brought in scabs to do work, but we also must remember one of the original reasons that they organized, which was because these workers don't get paid enough to work with animals, get kicked by animals, uh, work in these very hazardous conditions, and so then Medieval, Medieval Times doesn't have trained people to do these jobs, and they make them do them anyway. One yeah. funny anecdote that we saw was... Uh, during part of a show when, you know, the, I think it's like the chancellor or something like that. It says, uh, who, if there are any brave or knights that are not quite brave enough, they may hang up their hat now, which, you know, the part of the skit is that they're not supposed to. They're supposed to be like, no, we're brave. We will stand and fight. But one of the scabs was like, uh, actually, I'm out. You know, if I'm given the option, <laughs> I'm going to go. Which you I know, thought was a pretty funny anecdote. Look, I never want to throw praise a scab's way, but, you know, if you're going to do anything as a scab, the only thing that I can praise you for is this. Basically, the the the, the share zone, if you don't, if, if it sucks, quit. Hit the bricks. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Just walk out. You can yeah. leave. <laughs> Just because you accepted scab work doesn't mean you have to continue it. You can quit and stop being a scab. Exactly, you know? I mean... This just reminds me of a conversation they had on the death panel the other day. If you had uh, decided, if you hadn't been wearing masks for a while and you decide, hey, you know what? I realize I actually am still in danger. I'm going to put it back on. That's allowed. You're allowed to say, hey, I guess I was a little wrong and switch it up and, mm-hmm. and do the right thing. So, That's right. you know, if you if you made the mistake and you scabbed for, you know, a day, you'd be like, you know what? Actually, this is stupid. I'm going out and supporting the workers. Do That's that. That's right. Yeah, don't tell me to learn and grow. yeah so uh one of the workers who's been on strike at the buena park location which is like in the suburbs of la although i don't i mean la is so enormous i don't even know if suburbs is the right word um i don't know either sprawl yeah so the uh one of the workers aaron zapchich who plays Queen Doña Maria Isabella and serves as a steward for the new medieval times union said quote we love our jobs We're not happy to be out here. As exciting as it is to take a stand for something, we're doing this because we felt like we had to. Medieval Times has fought this every step of the way. They have drawn this out as much as they possibly can. 
and they continue to show us their true colors over and over and over again. They have flat out told us that they can't afford to pay what we're asking, but they don't want to, end quote. And like, that's one of the things that is like so stands out about this strike is that like there's so many of the companies that, you know, like, oh, right, we're supposed to have lawyers write what we say so that it sounds fine, even though we're doing union busting. This is a more of the style of like, no, this is my company. Fuck the workers. I hate all of you. And they're just like openly <laughs> like they're just like out there like like Perico Montaner is just like, tw- like twirling his waxed mustache, like standing at the top of a tower with a big top hat on. It's <laughs> yeah. just like completely open about it. Well, I mean, he's literally a Spanish aristocrat. Like he, <laughs> yeah. his, his dad, Jose Montaner was uncle to the count of Paralada. So this is, you're literally <laughs> dealing with aristocrat brain. This is like pre capitalist out here running a business. <laughs> so like, yeah. yeah. So, what you know, as always, we we are very much in solidarity with the peasants' revolt going on Correct. at the castle in Buena Park. And if you're in the LA area, definitely, you know, from reading about it, it sounds like one of the more fun picket lines <laughs> to go. <laughs> they to. They actually tell you to like put on your fucking medieval garb and and head on over there. You know. Mm-hmm. I got some studded leather armor laying around. (laughs) I might even have some gloves. If you're in the area, definitely go uh, show your support. Absolutely. In our next story, we are going to be covering uh, part of an article from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette where we learned about how the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is suing the mayor of (laughs) Pittsburgh, the acting police chief and director of public safety, for not having the police arrest picketing workers at the Pittsburgh (laughs) Post-Gazette. who are on strike right now. Imagine being such a crybaby <laughs> that you're a business owner and you feel like the police aren't doing enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, and they've been on strike for a while, but I'm gonna, we're going to cover one of the things in this article, because this article is fucking ridiculous, and the, the amount of, like, uh, in the letter, a Littler Mendelssohn lawyer who was quoted for some reason... I couldn't tell you why, but this uh, Brian M. Uh, Hentos, uh, who works in Pittsburgh, in the Lettler Mendelssohn building, which I have been in. I have been in that <laughs> building, uh, and fuck all those motherfuckers. Uh, he made a veiled threat against the picketers by saying, the defendants must do their jobs before someone gets seriously injured. That's yeah. literally a quote. And I'm like, maybe... He didn't really intend it that way, but that's exactly what he fucking said. Oh, come on. It's one degree away from nice picket line you got there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Yeah, Whoa. but I mean, like, this the, the stuff that came out of this article just reminded me. I'm like, this is another one of those throwback things, like, almost like, you know, the way that the, the government was conti- entirely on the side of Warrior Met in that coal strike is just... Like, because I've recently been reading some older labor history stuff, and they're talking about the way the press would talk at the turn of the 20th century, like around the Haymarket affair. And it was, it, it's not, you know, what you think about today, where it's like, well, you know, the workers have their concerns, but business also has theirs, and also the government has some. Who can really know which is right? Uh, also now here's a spokesperson from the company as well as several politicians who have taken enormous amounts of money from that same company. We're not going to tell you that, but here's quotes from them and no quotes from workers. Like that's the general way, you know, this shit gets done now back then. It was just like, 
can you believe the audacity of this scum to yeah. revolt against their benevolent masters? And that's a lot more like what we're getting from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Or it's like that <laughs> Mr. Fish Odor quote from Bob's Burgers where he's like, workers' uprisings aren't as fun anymore ever since workers became people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 very much in the same same vein as the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's ownership. Right. Well, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is claiming that the picketers are mass tre- trespassing against the company. Uh, <laughs> and I just like the police have told the Post-Gazette multiple times that, quote, the strikers have a legal right to be on the they on the property and the police were prohibited from removing or arresting the quote unquote trespassers. So like that now they're suing three different people in the city of Pittsburgh government because they're doing their jobs, uh, which is surprisingly in this particular case to not arrest the trespassers, which is <laughs> A strange turn of events, but it also shows the logic of capital in that they expect the police to just be their running dogs. Well, and I mean, that is the police's job, but there's this refusal to accept that you're not supposed to just say that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're supposed to do it more cleverly. I mean, and yeah. also, how much goodwill are they generating in the community <laughs> with this? As we all know, everyone's favorite neighbor is the person who constantly threatens to call the police on the kids in their yard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, so the workers have been without a contract since, hear this, 2017. And then, and so they were bargaining for a contract all the way in that time until uh, one of the unions was suddenly, they suddenly had their health care revoked, uh, which, so they went on strike. And then because of a solidarity clause in the CWA bylaws, that meant that the rest of the unions at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette had to go on strike. Makes perfect sense. And so then four of the five unions in the company went on strike. And this was in October of 2022, so just last year. And then the, a fifth union sent a, had about half of the people join on uh, about two weeks later. Now... Or this is a kind of a complicated story in that there are a bunch of crybaby scabs who say, oh, I shouldn't have to go on strike. Well, yeah, honestly, fuck them. But <laughs> talking more about this repeal of the health care, it only costs the company $19 per person to keep this health care going. And they revoked it, which is why the workers are on strike. And so I mentioned that there was the don't cross the picket line clause. And so then all of these unions had to go on strike, but they had kind of a symbolic vote where it's like, hey, will you go on strike in solidarity with your fellow workers? And that passed pretty narrowly, but it passed. But because it it was like a symbolic vote, this is given some of these scabs to, uh, an excuse to be like, uh, no, I shouldn't have to go on strike because it was just a symbolic vote. And it's like, fuck off. Like, some of these people got got fucking raises. They they literally got raises. Then there's a dispute on whether or not those raises happened before or after, blah, blah, blah. No, <laughs> these are just some fucking scabs. I don't give a fuck about them. And they need to learn to show some fucking solidarity. And, I mean, 
sure, I can be really mad at them, but we also have to consider that maybe there was a little bit of a lack of solidarity building within the union itself, but also, I don't actually want to give the scabs that much of a break, so fuck them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm not, I don't know anything about the politics of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, but I think some of the folks in our Discord who are in the area have mentioned that it's, I believe, a pretty conservative paper, mm-hmm. uh, and that probably plays a role in that, like, the people that they tend to hire, I would imagine that there's a higher percentage of folks with reactionary views, which, again, not that you shouldn't try to organize people with reactionary views, you should, um, but I have to imagine that that does make the sort of organizing in that environment even more difficult. Sure. And I think that these scabs are almost entirely in the newsroom portion of this. Mm. Um, so these are the people who are basically sense. like writing the articles. Right. And right. so the person who, so I'm pretty sure, I bet that this article that we got a lot of this information from was literally written by a scab. So, Oh yeah. Uh, uh, let me, let me quick get a name here. Uh, it's not just Gazette staff. Chris, That's what some- Chris uh, Mamula, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyways, this shit's ridiculous. Fuck the ownership of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for literally writing an op-ed that's like, the police aren't beating the shit out of workers as much as they used to, and that's bad. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Well, they've also been taking out full-page ads in their own paper that have a very graphic design is my passion kind of vibe (laughs) to them, uh, trying to blame the workers for shit, which is, I mean, like, it's just, it's the stupidest and pettiest shit I've seen in a while. (laughs) Yeah, well... This shit sucks. Good luck to the striking workers. Mm-hmm. But speaking of petty bullshit, that's right. I mean, it's let's talk about Starbucks, folks. You know, despite the continued victory of union stores, uh, despite the fact that they keep losing NLRB cases, Starbucks continues to break the law constantly. Um, and so, like, just on Monday, February thirteenth, a federal judge ruled that two worker organizers had been illegally harassed and then fired at two stores in Philadelphia and has ordered Starbucks to rehire them with end pay back pay within the next two weeks. Uh, and that this campaign of illegal firings has really exacerbated the already chronic understaffing for the purposes of maximum profits that existed at so many of these stores. But there could potentially be maybe a small bit of relief on the way for that because this week a, a federal judge issued a national cease and desist order for Starbucks telling them to stop illegally firing union workers, which is, this is always one of those things that's very weird because it's, it's like, it's always trumpeted as a major piece of news. And unfortunately it is a major piece of labor news, but it feels very strange to be like, aha, I have a huge victory. A judge told a company to stop breaking the law. (laughs) Like it was already illegal, but we're reminding them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the reason that this matters is that as we've mentioned so many times on the show, one of the things that I certainly complain about (laughs) more than most others, is the fact that the NLRB is purposefully set up to be largely toothless, that it has very few enforcement mechanisms. It essentially cannot hit companies with punitive damages for things. But a federal judge can. And so that's where this comes into play. So now that there's this federal injunction, now when there are NLRB rulings that show that a company, uh, specifically in this case Starbucks, illegally fired those workers, that now 
there can actually be additional punitive damages imposed. Now, of course, the, the proof would have to be in the in the pudding. I'm sure that's not that Starbucks will continue illegally firing people and it will take months for these cases to get before a judge. However, it'll be very interesting to see what the first case that this applies to is because if it's will double or triple the back pay or whatever, and that's considered punitive damages, then I don't really see this having much of an effect. But if... but. Depending on the judge, it could be something completely different. It could be an escalation charge. Mm -hmm. It could be like uh, you have to have a bargaining order if you get ruled to have illegally fired someone. So there's a pretty wide range of punishments that the judge could implement. I'm not particularly expecting that last one, which would be the correct response, but it is a possibility. <laughs> so uh, that that's why this injunction actually you know, is real news because – up until now, even when the NLRB has done their best to get workers who have been illegally fired reinstated, the amount of money that they can charge is essentially nothing. And so there's not been no real disincentive for Starbucks. Now there's the potential for one. And so we'll see what, if any, impact that has on their campaign of illegal firings. Yeah, I'm pretty I'm I'm a uh tentatively hopeful. Ten tentatively. Like, you know, maybe there will I, if we see some bargaining orders, then I we might actually see a little bit of change in Starbucks's behavior, maybe. Yeah, although I'm, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see if that's what happens. I hope it is, but uh, I'm not expecting it. Yeah, well, the workers have continued to fight back, uh, as they have been doing constantly. On Valentine's Day, over 100 different union and non-union locations held pickets outside their stores to bring attention to the rampant problems that they've been seeing get worse and worse, all while Starbucks continues to refuse to sit down and negotiate in good faith with the union. Uh, workers in Atlanta told Breakthrough News that some of their co-workers are only being given four hours a week in an effort for the company to force them to quit, which is something that we've talked about at many other stores as well, where they are trying to withhold any sorts of benefits or make it so that workers... Some workers are, in says, being given only four hours a week. Some workers are given zero hours and kept on the schedule. It's, yeah. it's purely symbolic, like, non-firing. Yeah. So... Uh, we we got a statement from uh, Jacqueline Gable, who's a Starbucks worker in Santa Cruz, California, who said, you know, as part of a press release when announcing these uh, these pickets at the stores on Valentine's Day, quote, partners across the country are hurting in unionized and non-unionized stores. Starbucks is slashing our hours and making partners face lost health care, food insecurity and even homelessness. It's time Starbucks stops treating us like we're disposable and starts treating us like people. That needs to start with them coming to the bargaining table at the 270 unionized locations and negotiating with workers in good faith, end quote. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot more uh, elections that are still in, in line to be happening as well. Right. And we did actually get some news out of Canada as well, where we saw on Wednesday, February 15th, workers at the Dunbar Street Starbucks in Vancouver voted via card check to join USW Local 2009. USW represents workers at about half a dozen stores in British Columbia and Alberta. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. I mean, like, you know, they're not having the same... It's a different union push in Canada, a different situation, uh, different unions involved. But it's still, I mean, it's always good to see, you know, that expanding beyond the national borders of the United States. Unionize them all. Absolutely. 
And there have been, you know, you mentioned the union elections, Lena, like there have been a lot of new election announcements lately because whenever I see them, I retweet them and I've just noticed, I was like, there have been like a couple of dozen of those in the last couple of weeks. So going through the NLRB schedule in a few, like a couple of months, uh, there should be another good uh, crowd of new stores. So 300 shouldn't be that far off, which is pretty a pretty cool milestone. 500, 600 by the end of the year. I hope so. One million unionized (laughs) Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) I would be concerned because how how has the population gone to the point where there are now one million Starbucks stores? (laughs) Um, But anyway, so in addition to that good news at that that Starbucks in Vancouver, we've got the inverse as far as scale because that store had 22 workers in it. Now we've got a story about a union victory for 11,500 workers the biggest new bargaining unit of the year when workers in northern virginia voted on friday february 10th to join the prince william education association an nea affiliate in the largest public sector union election in virginia state history uh part of that is because it's a very big bargaining unit but the other part is that virginia only recently allowed public workers to collectively bargain with their municipalities, and only then if the town votes to allow it. So there's a lot of hurdles that workers have to jump through in order to get officially recognized by the state. And so these workers are in the, in um, Prince William County, which is in the D.C. suburbs in northern Virginia, very wealthy area of the country. And this new union represents teachers, nurses, counselors, librarians, bus drivers, food service workers, teaching assistants, and other school employees at schools across the region, which I think is really cool because, you know, often we see like there's the teachers union and then maybe the rest of the school staff is unionized. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're in the teachers union. Maybe they're not. Maybe they have another union. And it's like, look, it, as long as they're unionized, that's really what matters. But I do think that there are a lot of advantages when you have a wall-to-wall union that gets, like, all of the workers at that site, mm-hmm. you know, into one bargaining unit, helps build cohesion, and, and generally just seems really cool. And so now, you know, to see 11,500 workers in this one bargaining unit in one go, that's pretty dope. Like, that's a lot of power for those workers. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a 64% turnout with a 90% yes vote. I mean, that's, yeah. that's pretty fucking stunning. That's a really high level of of worker engagement. So I think it speaks to exactly what you were talking about. Like, it it's good to have a bargaining unit that reflects the people you actually work with, whether mm-hmm. you're just, you know, passing them in the halls or whether you actually have professional responsibilities towards each other. Uh, so yeah, these workers started collecting union cards about a year ago and forced the board to vote to approve collective bargaining after over 3000 signatures were collected and bargaining for their first contract will open in April. Uh, so we had the school board, which has been weirdly like, all right with this after the workers voted in favor of unionizing in a statement following the vote, the board said, quote, the school board is very pleased that so many employees made their voices heard through this process. Now that both bargaining units have selected the PWEA as their executive representative for the purposes of collective bargaining, the board looks forward to working with the PWEA in good faith to address employees concerns and reach a reasonable and fair agreement in conformity with timelines and procedures. Procedures set forth in the resolution. I mean, it's kind of encouraging, but there's a whole lot of qualifying language in there. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just 
for me, I was comparing this with the attitudes we got from like, say the Malden teacher strike from their mayor or mm-hmm. from say like the university administration at temple. Uh, this like seemed a bit nicer, but then when I read a little more about the situation, I, it started to clarify itself. I think partially because the way that Virginia has legalized collective bargaining for public workers really puts a lot of limits, at least legally, uh, which we of course know is uh, mostly fake, um, on what the union is allowed to do. So like specifically in this case, the board here, the the school board, because they're a municipal agency, were able to put a lot of restrictions on what the bargaining for their first contract is going to be able to cover. They will be able to bargain over wages, benefits, and some other specific items, but the board retains major power over the workers. They'll retain sole authority to set job qualifications and job descriptions to increase or decrease staffing levels. And of course, decreasing staffing levels is a euphemism for layoffs Mm -hmm. Um, that they will retain full power over transferring and assigning employees to different facilities and to terminate, suspend, or otherwise discipline employees. So that's a whole lot of items that are just off the table. Completely. No grievance procedure, apparently. Yeah. So it's it's like, okay, yeah, fine. We we agree. You can collectively bargain. Uh, you can bargain over wages, and you can bargain over insurance, and that's it. And much. if you bargain for too high a wages, we're going to fire half of you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a very small box that they're putting people in. But it, but... That being said, like I don't want to make this sound like I'm criticizing the union for this agreement. Oh, absolutely like, not. Just getting their feet in the door as having an officially recognized union is an enormous victory because we know that those sorts of legal restrictions are only as powerful as the workers choose to let them be. Because, say, for instance, they go into these negotiations – And the board is like, hey, congratulations, you got your union. So you guys are good with a 1% raise per year for the next five years in like some five-year really long contract. And the workers are like, no, (laughs) we need a living wage. So here's our counterproposal. And they come back like, well, sorry, just that's not in the budget. So here's what you can have and that's it. And act like that's bargaining, like that that's like an actual negotiation instead of just dictating terms. And that's where, you know, it comes into the question of like, how real are these legal barriers? Because the union could then just go on strike. <laughs> uh, and, and that's where, of course, this all the rubber hits the road, because if the union has enough power and the union is able to get enough community support and force the, the board into a concessionary position, they can simply say, yeah, we know it says we can't bargain over these issues, but we've decided we are going to bargain mm-hmm. over these issues. <laughs> and if you would like school to start back up, you will agree to bargain over these issues. Because again, negotiations are a matter of power. They're not a matter of like what it says on some regulation somewhere. Yeah, like you say, the law is mostly <laughs> fake. It's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law is simply a codification of class power. And so, you know, uh, most of them are wielded against us. But ultimately, it's the power of the workers that, you know, determines what the actual rules are. And that's why unions are so important and why the ruling class hates them so much. <laughs> I mean, they're the reason we even have labor law. Mm-hmm. That's worth a damn. Yeah. Because they broke it and they said, make it better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so uh, we have a quote from the union's attorney, Broderick Dunn, who said, quote, I hope everybody who is involved takes a step back. I think everybody involved should really be proud. And now the hard work begins. End quote. That's right. 
I mean, that is how it always is, though. You know, you get your union, and there's a there is a long road to keep going on at that point. But eleven thousand five hundred new union members—that's that's that's no small accomplishment. That's no. really yeah. dope. So that's huge. Again, well, and, congratulations to these workers. Yeah, and what about three thousand more? At Hell a different yeah. at the University of Southern California. You know what? Uh, Throw them in. That's right. <laughs> they, have, they, have them. <laughs> they are now also in the Prince William Education Association. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So also on Friday, we've so many things happened on Friday the seventeenth. It's uh, true. Big there day. was a I changed the notes we, a lot. <laughs> well, what we call a landslide victory. Where the vote was fifteen ninety nine to one twenty two, a ninety three percent improve approval of joining the UAW. So that's uh, impressive. They uh, just uh, another real quick like university gigantic win, and they're gonna keep coming, folks. Yeah, they won by a whole digit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I I I love when the numbers are so small, like the no votes, where that I'm just like. I wish this vote was like in an auditorium, mm-hmm. like in person where it's people raising their hand <laughs> just because I'm like, I think that 122 would be like five people. Yeah. <laughs> all for no. And you just hear like scattered no's, and it's like all for yes. And you hear a huge roar of yeah. sound. And then you're like, all right, now just this side of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Take it back now, y'all. Yeah. One half this time. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, this is really great news. We love to see that the organizing wave in academia just continues to be unstoppable. Um, There wasn't a, I wasn't able to find, you know, like a ton of documentation on this, but the 3,000 student workers at USC plan to, of course, fight for better working conditions. And as we've seen with so many academic workers, specifically really want to fight for a strong grievance policy because, you know, it's just one of those things in academia where you have such lopsided power dynamics in favor of the folks in the administration that you really do need a union in order to provide any sort of an impartial judgment for the sorts of, you know, situations that happen so many times and, you know, with harassment, abuse, uh, racism, all the various, you know, stuff that happens like that. So, of yeah. course, that's a big issue that they're fighting for. But then finally, there was a quote from Step Mays, who is a uh, civil and en- environmental engineering student who said in the UAW's victory statement, quote, we are so energized by this resounding vote in favor of our union. The support for our union keeps growing stronger and we will be bringing this solidarity and energy to the bargaining table. And- Hell yeah. <clears throat> Love to yeah. see it. And and on the note of uh, uh, grievance procedures, they are super important, but doesn't the word grievance kind of send the wrong message? I think it should be a totally reasonable issue procedure <laughs> <laughs> damn we'll have to, I didn't we'll have realize. to bring it to the committee yeah <laughs> john flexing uh is like hr impression <laughs> <laughs> well uh i don't have a segue meme review oh well yeah me neither they're not very popular Oh, <laughs> yeah! Everybody's everybody's putting you know, shopping carts on top of those little hoverboards that just have wheels on. That's right. They don't hover. You know who else isn't very popular? The government. That's right. In the United Con- States. The clowns in Congress. <laughs> so this yes. first meme is the uh, two people uh, clasping hands and you know being like we're doing this together but one side is the democrats one side is the republicans and faded into the background is a burning 
wreckage of a train. And next to the Democrats, it says, make it illegal for understaffed rail workers to strike. And then on the Republican side, it says, repeal a law to upgrade Civil War era braking systems on trains carrying toxic chemicals. And <laughs> basically, this is indicating that there is one party, the Capitalist Party, with two wings, and they would like everybody to inhale toxic fumes. Yeah, with our powers combined, we can make the country uninhabitable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Because that's the thing. You know, you, I've seen people being like, this proves that, like, the Republicans are destroying the infrastructure or that, like, the Democrats have abandoned. It's like, they're both fucking responsible for yeah. this. Quiet, Absolutely. quiet. You're both right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like you are both abject failures at yep. governance. But, um, and in that same vein... Because all both parties know how to do is obfuscate and lie. <laughs> We've got another meme about this. This one, the classic, like, w people in a pool. You've got two kids in a pool, one of whom is being held up the other while the other is drowning. And so you've got the parent lavishing all the, uh, the attention on the kid labeled Chinese spy balloon, <laughs> which was not a spy balloon. It was a weather balloon. Um, <laughs> then you have this other kid just struggling can barely keep above water it's ufos which i love that though that this one is like nobody is paying enough attention to ufo <laughs> <laughs> like the long I've seen some people with that take and i'm like i don't know if i even want to look into it because honestly that seems wild to me <laughs> and, and then the bottom panel of the meme is the is, is it spliced in with like the skeleton on a chair on the bottom of the ocean <laughs> labeled probably the largest rail disaster in u.s history in ohio yeah <laughs> it's true yeah, i don't i don't i don't know if it's actually the largest but it's uh it's not great and yeah it's the you know for the first couple weeks there was like no coverage and now the coverage is like yeah there was no coverage but now we're covering it and also everything is fine now and everyone's doing great or alternatively you have the fox news coverage of everything is terrible and it's only because joe biden is trying to kill white people yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no <laughs> to both. And of then you. you know you have people on the ground saying uh every farmer in this area is entirely fucked cuz no one is going to eat a single grain of corn out of this location. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you want actual good coverage, I definitely do recommend just Breakthrough News has been doing really good coverage of like actual on the ground stuff just from actual people who live in East Palestine. So uh plug for them as a good yeah. info source. Definitely. The next one had me busting out laughing when I fucking saw it. Busting out laughing. So this is a TikTok from at uh, Ryan underscore Ken underscore Axe. And it's uh, presumably him with uh, dressed up like a New York Times reporter with the New York Times in the front. And it says instrumental music playing. And then the, the label just says, do trans people even deserve rights? We ask 13 Klan members at this Denny's in sundown town, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the amount of attacks on trans people has been absolutely rampant. Florida, South Dakota has basically made it illegal to be trans. Uh, there are other states with legislation pending. I that's not even I haven't even been following it as closely as I should, but like it's not too far down the road before it is just straight up illegal to to be trans in the United States. And uh so uh, solidarity with my fellow queers out there, because shit's bad. 
It's real bad. Well, and and meanwhile, the the New York Times is acting all indignant about how they will not accept their reporters being attacked for their views because some reporters wrote a letter that was like, hey, um, Nazis want to get rid of trans people and you guys are supporting it. Please stop. Like, <laughs> and they were the, like, this the, is an outrage. And then they flipped the Denny's table. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like the, the, you can't flip outrage. a Denny's table. They're bolted to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the, the, the feigned outrage, the pearl clutching from these people at the slightest criticism for their, frankly, like exterminationist writings that they keep putting out mm-hmm. about trans folks is it's certainly not the worst part of it. The worst part is the policy that they're advocating for. But at this stage is certainly one of the most fucking frustrating because it's like, look, you hate trans people and stop pretending that that's not the reason people are criticizing you. That it's like that there's some like Russian troll farm that is the reason you're being criticized. It's like, no, you just have abhorrent views and people would like you to stop advocating for fascist policies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, uh, anyways, fuck the New York times. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and kind of a joke against the kind of person who reports like that. We've got this, uh, (laughs) Frank Lloyd Wright style birdhouse as a, as a photo is like, just really fancy different colors square wood did like we're gonna put we always post the meme review in the discord so make sure to check it out if you want to actually see what this fancy s birdhouse looks like but the caption on it is swanky birdhouse it's a one bedroom in the san francisco area and it's thirty six hundred dollars a month (laughs) and it's a steal yeah it's a great deal (laughs) yeah uh the caption on this one is the bird that lives in this birdhouse makes four uh makes two hundred and forty thousand dollars a day by making other birds work in his warehouse for five sunflower seeds an hour (laughs) i just thought that this was a very relatable to our podcast style meme because i feel like uh you could find a worker who works for five sunflower seeds an hour (laughs) I mean, yeah, unfortunately, probably. I mean, that's uh, presumably that's what I mean, that's basically what Amazon pays to run the Mechanical Turk. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, not that far off from click work anyway. Yeah. But one of my favorites for the week is this is this Lord of the Rings meme. (laughs) Yeah. So this last one, we've got basically where it's the part. uh, I think this is at the end of the two towers, right? I thought um, this was in the fellowship at the beginning. Is it in the fellowship? I can't. I can. Y'all I, stayed actually, awake through those things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't movies. know. Dan could convince me it was from any of the movies. Anything <laughs> longer than an hour should be a TV show, and I will die on this hill. <laughs> you, I, I got some bad news for you about the uh, Patreon episode from this week, John. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're watching some real long TV episodes. Real long boys. We'll just leave it at that. Some real long boys. But 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 anyways, this is when when Frodo's trying to go off to get rid of the ring by by himself, and then Sam is coming after him. But it's been modified for our conditions, so it's 
I'm it's Frodo. I'm going to meet with my boss alone. And then Sam labeled wading into the water as my union steward. Of course you are. And I'm coming with you. <laughs> Hell yeah. I and love if anything because... in this meeting could, could be construed as discipline, I have the right to have my union steward present or whatever the wine garden rights is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Know your wine garden rights. This meme was actually produced by uh, CWA Next Gen, which, uh, you know, they put out some memes. It's neat to see a union actually embracing modern times times at least in some regard it would be nice if all of the unions also embraced rank and file unionism but we are working on that i mean they are communication workers memes are a form of communication just it's true (laughs) it's true well uh with that you know we're gonna wrap for this episode and if you'd like to support us because Again, we're entirely listener-supported. Go to patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's where you can get access to all of our overtime episodes, any of our interviews, or anything like that. We just finished up the main six episodes, six episodes of Unions and the Mob, Reputation versus Reality. And again, we're going to be doing a movie episode with, you know, we're not. I don't want to spoil too much. So become a patron. We need you to become a patron, and we appreciate it very, very much. Jump in the Discord and come have a conversation with us, and also check out these memes. Write us a review in on any platform. Leave your stickers all over the, the freaking city, and right. uh, follow John on Twitter at FacebookVillain. Follow the pod at WorkStoppagePod. Listen to... Re- Listen to red lettuce. Listen to <laughs> listen to beep right. beep lettuce. Listen to red game table, which is also now in the Discord. There's a if you are a fan of red game table, there is a channel in the Discord that you can come and talk about your favorite moments of the spooky scaries in the Soviet Union. Uh, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Fuck Perico Montaner. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And by letting these people know that we move from some basic laws, that anything that goes down on the oppressed people, on the part of the oppressor, it should be reciprocal. And in plain Polachan workers' language, it takes two to tango. As soon as these motherfuckers go, we go.
soon as these motherfuckers go, we go, we go, we go. We go.